This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme, who's not with us. Hugh had an appointment, so he's out on this one. But uh, best wishes to Hugh, as always. Today's guest on the Music Buzz is legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee and founder of both The Zombies and Argent, who has also collaborated with some of the best-known names in music, including Phil Collins, The Who, and more. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Rod Argent. Welcome, Rod. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Man, it's such an honor to talk to you today. I was reading someplace, and I totally agree with this statement that was talking about the original British invasion, and it said... There were three groups that were way more harmonically advanced than all the other British invasion bands, the Beatles, the Kinks, and the Zombies. Because right on your your very first couple of songs, you were stretching the chord progressions and the melodies into the things that you're still doing on this new record, Different Game, which I find incredible. I listen. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. The last couple of days I've been pouring through this thing. I mean, I'd like to kind of go track by track with you on it if you if you'd yeah, allow me to I, do I, so. i'd be happy to yeah sure i mean for for guys of not your age but of long living that are still doing music this great man you got to be proud of yourselves i mean this is one of the best records this is like odyssey and oracle time you know in a modern way it's so lovely to hear you say that and it gives me so much joy dane o- honestly that's that's really lovely thank you so much i mean um the whole idea uh, of doing it to just be exactly as we were with Odyssey and Oracle. Um, it's interesting because um, Chris White and myself um, produced Odyssey and Oracle because we'd become so frustrated with how our recent singles have been sounding. And we really wanted to, uh, it was in the air that we might have to break up for many reasons. Um, but uh, none of them because we fell out with each other. I mean, that was very unusual with a band, but especially when you, as you know, when you're, when you're um, you're, you're stuck in a in a in a van for or a a, a travel thing, you know, for hours and hours and hours uh, between each gig. Um, somehow we've always been huge friends. I've been a friend with Colin all my life since the first rehearsal that we had when we did uh, Odyssey and Oracle. Um, Chris and I didn't know if we could produce anything ourselves, but we felt we had to try and get our own ideas of what songs we had in our mind onto onto the onto the record and really uh with this current album we felt exactly the same because it's still that we still want to do everything for real and i i get from the tone of your voice you do too it sounds like it sounds like you're still playing 
because you love to play and you get the energy and the creative feeling out of doing it that you always did. And that keeps you young, man. It really does, I think. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, so uh, with with um, different game, um, we wrote as well. I mean, I I did nine. Of, I wrote nine of the ten songs, but um, we we wrote as we've always written. You know, through wanting to do it for real and to uh, the feeling of being able to create, and then to play it to people and get a response. You know, it was it. It's been so great, and quite a few. I mean, we've had some wonderful reviews um, everywhere, really, but um, in the UK. From the quality papers and everything, and they and they have said things like um, this uh, in a slightly different way it reminds them very much of Odyssey and Oracle, yeah. um, because again, in my head, for better or worse, I had a feeling of roughly how I wanted the song to sound, um, and it turned out that way, and and we did it very much. We went to a back to a very old way of recording, where. In, in my little studio here, it's only small, but it's set up beautifully just for me and the band and everything. And um, it was designed acoustically by John Flynn, who did the Abbey Road uh, control rooms. And so it was great to get him to do that. And it sounds great in here. Um, and it was a real joy to record. And we went back to that way of recording where as much as possible with modern technology, we wanted to record live. And we did it without click tracks. Uh, um, except for one song where we had to do it with a, a click trap for technical reasons. Um, but, you know, that that feeling, Dane, of, of, of being able to um, bounce off each other and, 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 and capture something like, like we did in the old days because there was no other way of doing it then, um, rather than build up things. And, and because COVID was going on, it meant the album took a long time to record because we had to wait until we could all get together in the in the same room again and do that. But it was worth it. And it felt really joyful experience recording. Um, and most of the tracks were recorded in, you know, the basic track, uh, including often a guide vocal, which became the lead vocal, and often including um, the solos, which meant to be guide solos and that we would replace later. But they often turned into the the ones that made it onto the record um because everyone you know great as you know if, if you're listening to somebody else in the band um you moderate what you're playing to as to what you're hearing and they they moderate what they're playing as to what you're hearing and colin's guide vocal uh subliminally changes as as he sings it we change our response in the ways of what to what we're hearing from colin as well and you get that little bit of um communication um, that's part of the magic of making music, I think. And and we love doing that on stage. So, you know, you obviously feel the same thing. Now, Odyssey was recorded at Abbey Road back in the late 60s, right? Yeah. So wasn't it recorded like a year and a half before it was released? What what was the history between of, of that? Well, as I said, the, the reason we wanted to um, record now ourselves was to to get on record the our own feelings and we didn't know if we could produce or not but um of of what we heard in our heads as we were writing the songs and we felt we achieved that and we loved doing the album but basically a financial reason um it was in the air the band might split up now there was a division because um we had very very honest publishers so myself and chris um white ha had a good amount of income it, it was really good. We usually had a hit somewhere in the world. We didn't find this out till much later in the sixties. You know, it was a, it was a very much 
um, bigger world and, and things took a long time to come across to you. But for the reason that we were fairly well off, but the rest of the guys, because we were so ripped off um, by early management and agency, that um, the performance money never really came properly to us and we only ever broke even. And I remember even though we were headlining tours in the States and in, in other places, um, I remember the, the guitarist saying, saying to me one day, I, I'm getting married soon and I've got no money. I, I'm going to have to move on. You know, and that's why we thought, oh, okay, we've got to try and produce a record ourselves. And, and we did. And, and then it came out. We thought if we have an immediate success with the single, then we'll stay together. Um, but otherwise, people are going to have to move on. So we didn't. It came out. Nothing happened. And we thought, great, though, because it's out there and we're really happy with it. So no one can take that away from us. I started forming Argent. Uh, Chris White uh, was also working with me on a non-playing basis, but producing with me and writing with me, too. Um, and uh, we started doing Argent. But then Al Cooper came over from the States. He picked up, to, he just joined CBS as a, their main A&R man. And he was a really, really big name, really big news, particularly in those days. Um, he, he picked up this album out of 200 albums he took back to the States. And he said to Clive Davis, there's only one that we have to release. And he said, we have to find out who's got this album. And um, whoever it is, we pay whatever it takes to, to get the album. And Clive said, well, we actually own it, but um, we like it, but we don't think it's commercial, which has always been the cry with us, always, right from She's Not There, in, you know, which became a number one record all over right. the world, Time sure. the Season. And then Time the Season repeated that. <laughs> he, he eventually got, I mean, Clive released two singles out of the album, neither of which were hits. And he said, Al, we've got to move on now. And Al said, please, Clive, let me have my choice just once um and and uh he said yeah okay one you know we're last shot all right so put out time of the season and it eventually became number one in cash box um and two or three in billboard and it became number one all over the world except for the uk <laughs> where, really really where, wow. where, so al cooper al cooper really went to bat for you guys man oh man wow. he he did How so fabulous. much such a sweet man. I mean, you know, and a great producer himself and, and some great tie-ups with his musical creativity. From Did Dylan, from walking into the session and not really being an organ player and just sitting back here. He's a trip. That's <laughs> great. the greatest. He told me that when he played uh, on uh, Like a Roller Stone, um, he said he just sneaked into the studio because he wanted to be there. Uh, and the guy that was producing knew him slightly, but knew him as a guitar player. Palm so, Wilson, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he went in, um, sat down where he saw a vacant Hammond organ, which someone had used. And whatever sound was on there, he, 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 he used, didn't know really. He wasn't totally sure about how to change it. And he couldn't <laughs> hear anything. So he played that. When he went back into the control room, uh, Dylan said, hey, what's that organ? Um What's that organ doing? And the producer said, oh, he's, he shouldn't even have been there. He, and, and Dylan said, turn it up. I love it. And that became a hook for the whole song. Oh, well, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that, was, uh, that was Al's uh, first foray. Into, I mean, he, you know, he, 
huge producer himself and uh, with right. Blood, Sweat and Tears. Blood, Sweat and Tears, first record, yeah. Right place at the right time and having the balls at the right well, time. Well, and you can hear him like right hesitate because he does. he's not sure of the chords, so the chord will go, he'll be go, oh, eh, uh, eh. He's like he's waiting a half note or a quarter note before he plays his, oh, oh, I hear that, what they're doing now. And he finally kind of learns it at the end or whatever, but. Yeah, now, what something similar happened to me um, in the uh, now. When was it? In the nineties, right? When I I became fairly well known as a producer with um, Peter Van Hook, and we we did now by a, a woman called Tanisha Tickeran, which sold four million in the in Europe and everything. Um, wow. And uh, there was a Paul Carrick album, um, and uh, Pete had Pete was producing it. And he assembled a really great band with Andy Newmark on drums, uh, Pino Andy. Palladino. You know Andy, yeah? Pino Palladino on bass. Um, uh, and and the guy from, um, not Hamish Stewart, but the other guy from Average White Band. Anyway, um, and, and then uh, we, we, we played, you know, there was some one or two chord sheets and played one or two tracks. Um, and I did that. And I was on Hammond. And, and then uh, Paul said, I tell you what we should do now. He'd written a song for the Eagles, which went into the top ten, which was "Love Will Keep You Alive." If you're hungry, love will keep you alive. Oh, Peter Van Hook uh, wrote that song. No, Pete. Oh, Pete, Pete produced it. No, oh, no, okay. uh, he produced it on the Paul Carrick album. Oh, but, I see. What um, you're uh, but uh, Paul Carrick wrote the song. I didn't know uh, that. Uh, yeah, wow. he, he wrote it for the Eagles, right? And so, so they decided to, to for Paul to do his version, and he said, "Right, guys." He said to the band who'd been in there, I, I came in for the maybe the third or fourth day. The others had already recorded some tracks. And he said, I'll tell you what we should do. Love will keep you alive. And he said, okay, two, three, four. I said, Paul, I've never heard the song. I, I don't know it at all. Have you got a chord sheet? He said, no, you'll pick it up. <laughs> so we, we, <laughs> okay. he said, we recorded it, you know, without any rehearsal or anything. And somehow I managed to get it together and it, and it ended up on the, uh, on the album. <laughs> that take was, that's awesome. That take, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I love it. I love the seat of your pants stuff, man. Oh, that's man. some of the best. I, I know. And sometimes you only yeah. do it when you've got no choice. <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> man, Actually that's... hold your head up with Argent um, was seat of the pants because um, I wrote that with, uh, with, uh, Chris White. It was basically Chris White's idea, um, and we went in the studio to um, record it. Um, and Bob Henry, the drummer, had, had had never heard it before ever, and he really had to listen. In and so did Jim, the bass player, really, really Jim critically. Rockford. Yeah, because we were we only had two days at Abbey Road to to record. So, um, what year was this? Was this sixty nine seventy? Uh, no, this was no, this was seventy-two. Okay, okay, nineteen seventy-two. Okay, and um, we did thirty-two takes of it. We were there for hours and hours. Did thirty-two takes, including you know lots of improvised solos from me and and stuff because the long version was six six and a half minutes long. Sure um, was. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> and and um, and and. Uh, we did 32 takes and we went back to take one as you're talking about seat of the pants because yeah. Bob and Jim were really, really listening and yeah. giving their first reaction for the first time yeah. to what was going on. And we couldn't, we couldn't repeat it. 
We just couldn't yeah. repeat it. And I, and I overdubbed um, part of the solo again because I, you know, as I always do, but anyway, I, I kept what I overdubbed. And that ended up, you know, three and a half minutes long, um, the solo. And, uh, and that, Rick so, Wakeman, he said that was the best solo in, in any song. I'm sure you've heard that before. I heard him say it, Andy. I actually heard him say it. I was round um, my brother-in-law's house um, at Christmas, and uh, Rick was on a Johnny Walker show. He, he was an English DJ, and <clears throat> and I'm really just casually listening to this. And he said, um, "Oh, today's long spot in the show, BBC show. Uh, we've got Rick Waitman here." So he interviewed Rick, and he said, "Well, what's your what? What are you choosing?" And and I and then to my amazement, I heard him say, um, "Hold your head up" by Argent. He said that organ solo is the greatest organ solo um, that's uh, on a record. And mm. I thought, "What?" I, you know, I was in seventh <laughs> heaven for the whole the whole sure. of the Christmas period. You know? yeah, that's awesome. And it was man. so sweet of him to say that. I mean, it was oh, just yeah. so lovely. It's classic, Brilliant. man. I mean. Oh, I, yeah. That that song was like when I was about I don't know thirteen or fourteen. That song came out. I can just remember. I can remember specifically in the summertime being in a tent with a bunch of slightly stoned uh, schoolmates and just standing up. And when that song was playing, we were just hold your head. Up. I'll never forget it. It's one of those moments. One of my yeah. favorite moments in my life. I bet you song. thought. I bet you thought the words were "hold your head up." Whoa, didn't you? I thought it said "hold your head up, hold it." No, what does it say? Uh, this this is pointed I out. I mean, we still we still do that on stage, and my solo is even longer than it was on the original. Oh, good, um, excellent. <laughs> but um, but I try and improvise every night. Um, you know, that's one of the things that keeps things fresh. You know, as well. And um, our sound man, who's absolutely great, a, a, a guy called Dale Hansen, who co-produced the new album with me as well. Um, okay. He said. Do you know, Rod, he said that, that song goes out absolutely great. People love it. He said, but a lot of people don't realise what the real words are. And actually, Chris White wrote it for his, he, he just got married and his wife was going through a really hard time. And he came into me one day, we shared a flat at the time, and he said, I've got this idea for a song. He said, and if it's bad, don't let it get you down, you can take it. And if it hurts, don't let them see you cry, you can make it. Hold your head up, woman. So it's woman. okay. Hold your and head now, up, woman. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah and now, okay. now we always point that out. Wow. And we say to people because it's something we believe as well that that women all over the world uh, seem to be going through such a hard time at the moment in in, in you know in some of the Middle Eastern countries and wherever um, that we thought uh, it's good to point that out and we and we ask them to raise the roof by singing the chorus every time they get to it and make sure they sing hold your head up woman because it's and, and make it uh, apart from anything else as a sort of um universal slight anthem in a slight way you know yeah. as support really that changes the whole thing for me it does, it does yeah. it went it? from i mean it can't change that it's still one of my favorite songs of all time oh, but yeah. but wow yeah. how it's another, le another another level it's another uh, level of added, cool isn't it yeah that's yeah, great man thanks for sharing that's that that's fantastic. great fantastic well, let's talk. Let's talk about this new record. Um, oh, thank so, you. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's let's go through these tracks here. So, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I've made notes on everything. Man, I was just very impressed. And now that you tell me that you guys were all in the same room, I could feel it. I mean, it's it it 
feels like music being played all at the same time. It just does. Oh. It has that. It just it has that vibe. Well, it's so lovely um, that you've you that's come across to you. Yeah, Fantastic. and like so different game. I mean, I hate to use this comparison, but it's the best song, the the best follow up to Whiter Shade of Pale. It's too bad the Procol Harum never had one as good. We had to wait how many years? <laughs> 55 years to hear something that's that classic again. I mean, it's not you're you're not taking the the melody's not the same. The hook line isn't the same, but it's a stately ballad in the I mean, anytime you go, you start going down on the keyboards and you got that drum beat, it's like, "Oh, it makes my heart feel good." But man, it's it's so fantastic. I love it. It's a great song. We need well, thank we, you. I haven't heard something in that vein in I don't know, 50 years. It's beautiful. Quite a few people have mentioned um, White Shade of Pale, and I always say this because the genesis of that song, of, of Different Game, was the fact that uh, apart from, you know, loving a lot of uh, rock and roll, uh, I also love jazz, and I also love, um, I, I love Bach. And my mm. wife and I had just been to the Leipzig Bach Festival, and I came back. Um, and there was a what there was actually I have to tell you there was a wonderful concert on the last night um, in the in the church where Bach was a cantor for, for years and the last oh, wow. thing he wrote was called the Mass in B minor. Now, first of all, without going for too long into this, the church was packed. There were two thousand people in the church. It was absolutely packed. He wrote it for two organs, uh, one on either side of the of the church, two choirs. Um, a, a group, a group of um, orchestral musicians, and um, and and some solo singers as well, um, and the wow. the volume of sound in that church it was like a rock and roll concert. It was just, you know, people often play classical music and think of it as relaxing in inverted commas, or, or they often play it really quietly. This was a massive volume coming out, and awesome. it. And I said to Kathy, this feels like a rock concert. It's fantastic. And um, there was one part of it called uh, Sanctus, one movement in it called Sanctus. Um, and it, there was a particular section in the Sanctus which went, um, Sanctus Dominus, Sanctus. And, and, and it went through this chord sequence for about the first six bars, six or eight bars, that I absolutely adored and when i got back home i started playing that chord sequence uh, you know just for fun really and, and and i looked up the score of it and just started playing the chord sequence and then i thought um i, I found myself singing a melody over the top and singing some um uh, and thinking of it as a song I, I had to then make it into a more of a concise thing if otherwise it would never be a song, you know, because it goes all over the place in in the bark thing. But it felt so powerful. And as you as as you said, Dan, that that um, descending bass line, you know, bum 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 bum, it's so typically bark. And of course, that's that's where that's um, where Gary Brooker got it too. That's yeah. where Gary Brooker got it from. It wasn't copying Gary at all, but I was copying I was copying the the bark sequence in in the um the mass in b minor but that's so, I mean, where that, that had from. to have been killer so two organs you had to have been loving that oh, oh man yeah, it was, was... So, and, and you know how loud a, um a full full organ can oh, be dude. in a church yeah. we can imagine two of them on either <laughs> side 
and and just smacking out this 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 stuff. Oh man, I thought this is rock and roll, you know, fantastic. Well, it's a great tune. You, you ended Thank up you. with the, you guys ended up with a great one. And Colin, man, his his singing throughout this is pretty remarkable. It really is. And you're playing, everybody's playing. The whole band is spot on. The uh, the second tune, that's where you bring the Wurlitzer. I, I assume that's a Wurlitzer, a real. Uh, it's a Fender, actually. It's a Fender Rose. Is that what you're playing through most of the record? Is a Fender uh, Rose? No, that's when it is. Um, on, on, it's the Fender Rose. That, I mean, I've got quite a few vintage instruments here. Um, and we never take them on the road with us be, be, because no. of practical reasons. But sure. I, I love recording with them. Oh, yeah. Um, and I managed to find the the sound the Fender Road sound that I I love the best. It it was the one that Chick Corea fell in love with in the, in 1975, and it's the Mark V. Um, okay, I need Rose. to know that. I have some. Of the, <laughs> I have those samples, so that's the one I'll start using. The 75 oh, Mark V. Okay, I, I absolutely loved it. And the funny thing is, is that we've just had a, a documentary um, made uh, about the zombies, which which I it was made by um, a Robert Schwartzman, member of the the Coppola family of uh, of movie makers, um, and um, it's 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 now been uh, exec produced by Tom Hanks, and he's put a little in in the documentary, he's put a little slice of something which I didn't know existed. It was um, I. I while we were recording, um, Drop Reeling a Stupid, which is the, the second song, um, when we recorded that, um, our, ba- our bass player, a Danish guy who's absolutely great, called Soren Kopf, he put his uh, little iPhone up and recorded one of the takes when it started to come together. And the, the whole thing, again, was recorded in about three hours, the whole thing. And you can tell from that, obviously not as good sounding, but you can tell from that iPhone footage that's used in the film um, that this was the take from start to finish that was used on the original, uh, on the the eventual album, you know, on on, on the the, pro- the proper recording of it. Um, uh, Colin's voice is exactly the same. We didn't alter it at all. We maybe tuned a couple of notes here and there, just, just touches. Because I hate auto-tune sound on voices. I mean, I, I can't stand it, man. It sounds, they sound so um, fake, uh, so mechanical, <laughs> robotic. Yes. They sound, you know, they yeah. sound wrong. <laughs> yeah, they just sound wrong. So everybody sounds the same in the end, to my ears, anyway. Yeah. You know, once it's been auto-tuned to distraction, so you can hear <laughs> yeah. Colin's performance, and and actually. Even though I played a different solo on all, all maybe six takes that we did, that is the solo that we used, and and we didn't. And I I didn't realise that I didn't touch it up or anything. It was just the one as it came off. So it was that feeling again of what I've already said, Dan, about um, about people just reacting in that way where you you can capture a bit of magic, um, in which which you always felt that you did in the old days if you were lucky. You know, and so so that's a good example of that. And I love that ensemble riff in the middle and at the end. That's really cool. Yeah, I love that as well. That was really great fun to do. So the third song, okay, now boom. So you know, the first song you got that that groove, and then that one you got the kind of like rock and shuffle, and then we have 
the best Beach Boys song in 50 years, Rediscover. It's like I'm hearing those <laughs> harmonies. I'm going, what in the world? Agree on that. Yeah. Wow. Sure. Great melody and chord progression. Colin's killing it. I mean, did you guys have the Beach Boys? Yeah, you must have some Beach Boys fantasies or something going on, man, because <laughs> that is killer. So how'd that song come about? Well, I'll tell you exactly. Um, I'd already written the song. and I wanted it to, to have, you know, fairly jazzy chords and things in it. And I, I wanted to write a song that that uh, sort of had, had unusually um, dissonant um, chords. Brian Wilson. Yeah, Brian Wilson chords. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I'd written it already. And then we went on tour on um, a, a double headline tour with um, the Brian Wilson with Brian Wilson and his band. And and they have about, oh God, how many singers have they got on stage? Maybe eight, eight or 10 singers or something. Um, and they used to, it was just brilliant. Uh, share, uh, the dressing room we had on this particular evening was just up the road from, um, from Brian's. And they always used to go out into the corridor and warm up by singing a cappella. And I just loved the sound of that. And I said, I said to the guys, you know what? It'd be lovely if I could just write um, uh, an a cappella eight bars to, to introduce this song, um, and and that was one of the that was the only song where, for those eight bars at the beginning, we had to use a click just for those eight bars at the beginning, because um, I wanted to double track the vocals. Most of the harmonies on the album were single tracked, but on that one, I wanted a really full sound. And um, the next morning, I was in my hotel room and I had a piano in the room and and I thought do you know what I'm gonna give this a little go and and I wrote I wrote out these sort of fairly dissonant harmonies not you know trying to keep away from the thing where it's uh root third and fifth you know so you've got parallel harmonies um but doing something which where, where things clashed a little bit in places and and it just sounded really interesting to my ears and we tried it in the dressing room the next the next afternoon and i said that sounds really nice um and that's how that opening eight bars happened and i said we've we got to do it with nobody playing uh, at all but halfway through it we'll, we'll bring just some light drums um uh, and then kick into the real song now that song i thought colin was going to have the most trouble with of all the lead line is it felt a bit difficult to me, and it it's felt not quite easy. Jazzy. Yeah, it's not it's not an easy melody to grab onto. To just qu quickly grab onto, and yet, and I said, just 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 do a guide vocal, Colin, if you can manage it, and we'll, and we'll play along to it. You know, I said, but don't worry about it. Anyway, he did a guide vocal, and 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 I I only ever thought of it as a guide vocal, and then about um a week uh, two weeks later when we got back together again, um, I I put it up. And um, I thought, wow, that's a master vocal, Colin. And that was it. That was his vocal. Uh, absolutely um, straight off the top, he did it. Now, I mean, sometimes you write a song that you think, this is so much up Colin Street, and he's going he's, he's gonna to love this. And, 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 and he finds it, and, you know, or, or whoever you're talking about, finds it much more difficult than you imagine. But on that one, which I thought was a really difficult melody, he, he just naturally he nailed it right off the bat. Stung it and nailed it. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, it's a great song, man. I, I was very surprised. I mean, it just it, it it fits perfectly as the the album, and that's the other thing: the pacing, the way you guys organize the the way the songs flow into each other. It's really done well. Just you must have thought about that some, like old records, like we used. They used yeah. to do that. You wonder I if mean, anybody does that now, but you guys well, did. Exactly, because everything is streamed so much now. Very often, people just play one or two tracks that they know from an album and don't see them in context. And I hate that. And one of the things that I, I love so much is that a lot of um, much younger people uh, are getting into vinyl. Yeah, and, and totally. It, yeah, and into the experience of, of, of um, because it's, you can only have 20 minutes aside on vinyl. You, you bring your vinyl copy home. You can read as you're listening to the tracks about who's playing, who's producing, um, you know, and, and, and who's written the, the songs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it becomes a much more immersive experience. And then you hear things in context, um, you know, rather than just out of nowhere. And I think, I think if you get the sequence right, they have so much more power if you do that. Well, I, think well, so I, I, I think that's why vinyl's made such a big comeback. It's, I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, I have, I've, I've got um, four kids. I got three boys, and and they and one of them in college who's really gotten into vinyl. And we had a conversation about it one time. I said, you know, it's like reading a book. I mean, you don't read the first and the last chapter only. You know, exactly. It's, it's the same kind of thing. And I think after you for so long, I think some of it is just rooted in the fact that music got so cheap and and the value was taken out with with you know Napster, and we all know the story there. But I think a lot of it is like people are starting to realize the real value of music. The point of albums being made aren't just so you can have 12 songs. It's because there's a reason why they made 12 songs or 10 songs or 50, exactly. whatever. And when you start to like understand, it's the same thing as writing. A, it's the same thing as a book. It's just music. And when you listen to the whole thing, you're supposed to listen to the whole thing, <laughs> you know, not just bits and pieces. So you get the whole story. And the context is everything. It really it sure is. is. It makes it so much more powerful. Um, I think you're so right. And, and it's lovely that some people are, some of the younger guys are, are really clocking onto that. You know, because sometimes um, I used to find that I, I mean, I, I'm terrible like everybody else. I stream everything as well because it's just so easy to find whatever you want if you just, you know, just choose a track and you can stream it. Um, but I used to find often um, that when I played an album for the first time, a couple of tracks blew me away, um, and the rest, and 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 some of the other ones, you know, maybe one or two of them I didn't particularly like. Um, but sometimes those songs which took longer to go in became your favourite songs of 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 all of them, and that's what people are missing out on now. Things which are maybe not quite so immediate, um, but become become things that, that that become the classics in a way you know so yeah i, I think you're right andy yeah like i remember when sergeant pepper which i got when it came out i mean th that was uh, to me it was it was hard for me to get into like she's leaving home for whatever reason uh -huh. And and well, you know, I, mean, I, I was seven. Maybe. I was seven years old too. So yeah. it, didn't, it didn't. Bam! It didn't hit you like tax man. Well, exactly. Or, not when or, you mm. know. And then so I'm so. But now when I go back, that's maybe my favorite song on that record. It's a beautiful sure. song. You yeah. Know, yeah. Your, your perception changes. You know. Yeah. It, but it took that it didn't immediately grab me like that. Like like you say. You know. I think it's uh, that's a very good point. We need to give. We need to start listening to these records all the way through, mm. right? I, 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 and I find that now, if I have vinyl, I'll put it on, 
and you have to sit there really, and then you can concentrate on it. Because I, I, I'm, I'm terrible like everybody else. I, I stream a couple of things, and I, I think while while they're going on, I think, oh God, I haven't done that, and and you, and you, you know, maybe check an email or look at something. But that, but that's bad. You know, you're not looking you, at the album, going now. Did the no. same guy write that one that wrote the first one? I sure. spent so much time doing that as a yeah. as a youngster that. Oh, you, you know. do when when you've got that first flush of of huge enthusiasm, you do all yes. that. Don't you? you want to know yes, everything about everything, yeah. yeah, yeah. And this record deserves that. And again, I I applaud this. Um, every song on here, we'll, we'll see. Oh, run away with classic keyboard performance on that. You're wailing on that electric piano. Now, that, again, is that the same seventy five? It's the same one. Yeah, man, that has a, got a nice sound. I couldn't. It's like a little bit different sounding. Uh, it sounded a little different. Maybe it's just the EQ is a little different than it was on uh, Rediscover. But man, nice understated kind of groove, but very cool, very cool song. Oh, Love thank it. you. That was that was one which just came together in the studio. It was a, it was it was the very first. Was it the first track we did? It was either the first or the second track we did before COVID really hit. We had to stop you know, for nearly t nearly a year and a half or something or two years until we could all get back together again. Um, but we'd only just come back recently from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Um, and we'd been touring extensively up to that in the States. Um, and we felt, I f we all felt that the, the band had never been listening to each other as much and had never sounded so, so good. And uh, we want, that's why, one of the reasons why, it felt so important to do it all as a live thing in the studio or, or live-ish thing in the studio. Um, but that was one of the first ones. Um, the guys had been through the song on sta on sound checks. So we, we, we'd done it on sound checks uh, a few Did times. You knew it? Yeah. Uh, and we quite, quite liked it. But as soon as we got into the studio and we could all e hear each other absolutely properly. Um, and as I said before, the, the sound in the studio acoustically is great. Um, then it just really glued together. And and we recorded, that was the first thing that we'd recorded in, in maybe a couple of hours. You know, it was a few takes and we had it and that was it. And that's what we used. And then then we did overdub, um, we did overdub a couple of backing harmonies to that, but everything else was live completely, including live. the solos, including the guitar, everything. Feels great. Just fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so the fifth cut, which would be, Right, but the last one on that side of the record uh, would be uh, "You Could Be My Love," which is just acoustic piano, strings, and vocals. Uh, which is, you know, I love it. Again, it's paced like you you would do that at the end of the side. You'd put a song like that and then turn it over and have something that grooved a little bit more, which you did. I mean, I still think in terms of things as albums. Because yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I hear what you're saying exactly. But tell 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 us about that song. Beautiful, beautiful ballad. I wanted to write one song that, that Colin and I sometimes do acoustic concerts. Uh, you know, uh, okay, uh, they're always put in for us, and we never realise that we, we've got to do them. Um, but we sometimes do just two voices and a and piano. And, and I thought, oh, it would be lovely to have. First of all, I thought it'd be lovely to have a song that's just just like that. And when I'd written it just on the piano, I thought, why don't we keep this really, really simple? Um, and and so that first idea was to have just piano and voice and then i had in my head or well i can hear just a little bit of bass coming in here now so maybe we should just add a little bit of bass and then 
I thought, when it gets to the, the piano solo, I thought, why, instead of featuring the piano solo, why don't we suddenly, unexpectedly, mm. bring in some really sumptuous strings? And so that was the first thing that I orchestrated, I think, for the, for the album. And so we, we put the orchestra on afterwards, um, and I've got, uh, I live in a house that's a barn conversion. So the middle of the house, um, it has got a hugely high roof because of that, because it's, it's like a 17th and 18th century um, initially, and it was converted in 1995 or something. But a hugely high roof. I've got my nine foot Steinway concert ground in there. And, and also the acoustics are great for that, but they're also great for strings. And I thought, if we keep it really in-house, put the strings on, um, and, and I, I wrote um, two of the string arrangements. I, I wrote that one. It was the first one I wrote, and then I wrote Different Game as well. Um, and we recorded that uh, all on one session in the house, um, and um, and the third song, which was – well, we'll get to that in a minute, and, I, and I'll tell you – about that, but but that, oh, that yeah, was I the feeling fly. behind that, yeah. you know, and, and to really feature the um, the strings in the way that um, what was that album? Was it ABC where they had very a Trevor Horn thing where they had really loud strings? But uh, and I thought if the strings are going to be there, let's get a beautiful sound, and and I loved writing that bit, and, and it worked beautifully, and uh, I just loved the way. It it, it it came down. And I thought I'd love to just do a little postscript to the song at the end by playing some really jazz-voiced piano chords at the very end. And and I put that in as well. And um, I loved Colin singing it, absolutely loved it. And um, it was a favourite song of mine as well. It, you know, I, I, I really loved the way it turned out. So I'm so pleased that, you know, that you've reacted to that as well. Let's talk talk about jumping into another genre. It's like uh, okay, now we got the gospel stylings of Rod Argent here taking over. Yeah, um, wow, the band is smoking on that song. So tell us about. And this is the first time. No, it's not the first time. The first time we heard acoustic piano was "You Could Be My Love." Yeah, but this is the first time we've heard the acoustic piano in that gospel kind of wailing groove. Tell us about sure. this tune. Well, um, it felt to me when we, as I've already said, we came off the road after being on the road a fairly long time and ending up with the induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, I thought, let's go back and do the album. Lots of enthusiasm. And I thought, I really want to write some songs on this album that have got some groove and, and, um, and a bit of real energy in them. Um, because so many bands of our vintage um, seem to make an album and they sort of tone everything down a little bit and it becomes a much more sort of middle of the road in the, in, in the intensity. And I thought, that's not us on stage. That's not us on stage at all. So, you know, I've got to write two or three things um, because I love things with great grooves and, and great energy. And, and that was uh, that first one. I th that was the very first thing we ever recorded, actually, for the album. The very first. Um, and I, I, I put a click track down, uh, wrote the song uh, to the click track, and, and just put a, a sample piano on it. Um, and as I always do, I, I finished the vocal on the song and everything. And, and 
and and then I actually wrote the guitar line, you know, that comes in at the beginning and, and all the way through as a counter to Colin's voice. Um, I actually wrote that, and 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 Tom, our guitarist, got that together, which was great, and then did his own thing on the chorus, um, and uh, and and we we recorded that, and that was the second one we actually recorded after um, Runaway. That was the second song we actually recorded, um, and I, I loved it. I I absolutely loved the recording. I thought it captured all the energy that I wanted. Um, and, um, that was the story of the song, really. Um, it was just huge pleasure and it was great to be able to play those few bars in the middle with some real jazz, jazz chord voicings as well, but really hit it out there, you know, um, that, so wanted a, a, a great rock and roll song. And as you were mentioning, uh, I, I love like you, the feeling of, uh, um, an album having, um, a shape and after, uh, and after, the ones you've talked about, I thought it was time to really hit with something. On beginning of side two on the vinyl, um, it is is that is uh, you know, and, and I and I love the vinyl pressing. By the way, it was great. He did a great mastering on it. Came back and I thought, and and the um, the the actual uh, vinyl mastering, which is very important, I think, because it, the sound can change a lot on vinyl. Well, you did a great job because I could tell you were you weren't messing around. You were pounding on those keys on that one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Putting a little volume behind them. That was very. It's a very cool song, man. Thank you. Um, so, uh, love you while I can, which comes next. Uh, it's kind of a different vibe on this one, which is cool. Something different. It's like the picked guitar takes the whole tune. It's got that dear prudence thing that it, it reminded me of. I mean, it just took me to ah, dear prudency kind of a guitar, which is I hadn't heard on this record so far. That that that's kind of like the main instrument. It seems like that goes through. So, it's a great song. Love it. Thank you. Well, Tom, our guitarist, um, he's a terrific player, um, and I originally wrote that song with um, that that whole guitar riff that he plays the whole arrangement of the guitar that was actually written on the piano and I, in my head um i thought that's going to sound beautiful just on the piano maybe with an acoustic guitar i thought maybe with an acoustic um and uh you know just being there a little bit with it as well and and we we tried it out on a sound check and i was really disappointed i thought yeah, this doesn't really work out at all. I think I was um, playing a bit of electric piano on it. It just didn't work. And when we got back, I said to Tom, if I score these notes out exactly, his wife is a, a really good classical pianist. And Tom is a, is a wonderful musician, but he doesn't basically read. So I, I thought, there's only one way of doing this. I'm going to have to score it out um, and see if it's possible on the guitar. Um, you know, so score out the piano part. But then his wife uh, can can basically um, help him through the whole thing at home because she's because it's a very classical sort of thing, you know. But then, oh, very. But then um, after after she had all that, uh, I I I think I I did hear somewhere, dear Prudence. And I thought, wow, I love that sound. I love the actual guitar sound on that. And I thought, how how did they get that? And, I, and I've got the Abbey Road um, book 
um, I think I got it from there. It, it was talking about recording at Abbey Road. This is wonderful, huge, huge sort of tone. Um, and I found out, I think that, I think it was Lennon that played it. Yes, and, it was. And I think he played, he played an, an, no, he played an electric guitar, but in an acoustic way. So it was really hard. Finger, it had to be finger, finger picked. Yeah, finger picking. Yeah, that's the Donovan. I, Donovan showed him that finger picking in uh, India. In India. Yeah. Really? That's, that's, Is that it's true? the Donovan. It's the Donovan finger picking. Yeah, Donovan's a friend of mine. Yeah. Oh man, that's yeah. that's so nice to hear. It's so funny hearing these connections, isn't it? Yeah, it sure it's, is. It, it's it's great to hear the connections. Um, so he actually so, had to learn. So his wife taught him. Yeah. Played it on the piano, and then he learned it like that. He learned it. Wow. He spent he spent weeks, you know, getting it absolutely right. Now I still know I didn't know if it was going to work. And we messed around in the studio and he had to play it. He could have played it on acoustic much more easily, but playing it on the electric apparently was 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 much more difficult because of the finger picking and, and the difference in the guitar uh, spaces between, you know, strings and everything. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, we actually did spend on that. That was that was another one where we had to do it with a, a click because he had to. We couldn't do it live. That one. That's one that we had to do um, uh, be, because of what was going on. And that's one track that I thought Colin is gonna. It, it's gonna be so easy for Colin to do. It, the song was actually written because our managers. We've got two managers, American managers. One. Is male and the other's female, and they they got married, um, and they wanted to have the the wedding ceremony in my place here in the country. So they all came over, and I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to write the song uh, that just Colin and I could play with voice and piano, and it would be a real surprise for them when they got married. And in the end, um, we didn't get it together in time, uh, but I still ha had the song, so. Um, we recorded it, and then and then I, I played the my demo of it. I played um, uh, Chris and Cindy my demo of it um, in, in my studio uh, on the on the day before they got married, and they they were in tears. They were in the studio. They were in tears when they heard it. So we did record it, and in the end, um, Colin really had to work at that one. I thought it'd be so easy for him that one, but he really had to work at that one. But he did a beautiful job in the end, and. Um, and, and and I loved it. So and, and I wanted the I wanted the center section uh where we all go into uh double tracked harmony. Um I wanted that to be very beatly. Um the, the middle part. It was the middle part I was thinking of as being very beatly, but you but you're right uh, about the, the feeling of it, you know, from the beginning. It's great. I mean the whole tune is great. It's like again, it's just kind of took me back yet it, yet it's modern sounding and just it's a great song. Now, but the next song really blew my mind. I want to fly strings and vocals only. I mean, the only other song I can think of this is the one we all think of Eleanor Rigby. What uh, this, this has a vibe of that, but it's not, it's nothing like it. It's, but here, here you've pulled it off a song with just vocals and strings. So let's hear about it. It's great. I mean, it's great. Well, unfortunately, um, uh, although it's one of my favourite songs, and Colin and I had done it acoustically on stage quite a few times with just piano and voice, it was originally written just just for me and Colin. And then um, after the Zombies first broke up, 
Chris and I, Chris White and I, produced an album called One Year for Colin, which had on it um, a track called Say You Don't Mind, which was a huge hit in the UK and in Europe, uh, but not in, in the States, unfortunately, or, or Canada or the North American continent. Um, and um, the string arrangements on One Year were absolutely sublime. We got this classical composer um, called uh, Chris Gunning, who unfortunately has just died. Um, uh, but he wrote a lot for TV as well. But he was he's written for classical music and had um, his orchestral stuff played at the Albert Hall and everything um, by major orchestras. Um, he did such a wonderful job all those years back that I said to Colin, um, do you know what? I'd love, even though we we actually did a version on an earlier album for the full band, but I said, do you know what would be wonderful? If, if we could get Chris Gunning, if he likes it enough, um, to just to do a voice and string version of it to um, uh, as a reminisce uh, for the one year album, um, and uh, and I he said and Chris I phoned Chris up and he said well I'll come round he said play it for me so I played it for him and he loved it luckily he absolutely loved it and I and I said will you do a string arrangement in 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 the way that you did for one year and he said he would. And I loved what he came up with, um, and so that was that was the one. Unfortunately, on the album that I didn't orchestrate, but but you know I couldn't have done, have done what Chris did. Uh, it was it was so classical and and so lovely, um, and really lovely. Fantastic! And then to follow that with a bluesy harmonica and uh, your roads again, uh, got to move on, man. It's such fun listening to that. I love the spirit of that song. <laughs> That was actually a, a whirly. Uh, it's my vintage. That whirly. was a whirly. Okay, so that, that was, a was a whirly. All right, I had whirly down, but I was I was going. I don't know because I got the other two. I wasn't sure. So okay, I'm going to go back and I listen did. a little. You no, you're probably right. Yes, I, I, I think, think it was a whirly. Listen again. Yeah, no, we did, and and we recorded um, the two little speakers at the front, you know, above the keyboard. Oh, okay. Uh, and so we put yeah. mics right on them and, and did it that way. Um, and also, I remember putting the basic track down and playing it to my wife. And and she really loved it. But she said, you know what? She said, you used to play harmonica way back in the 60s when I first met you. Um, and I said, oh, my God, I haven't played any harmonica for about 55 years or something, whatever it was, you know, <laughs> not maybe not 55, but but almost that. And, and and she said, Well, why don't you give it a go? I said, I don't think I could even bend a note anymore. I, I just haven't, you know, tried it. And she said, Oh, go in the room at the other end of the house and 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 um and, and just <laughs> just have a go. And you know, I started and first of all, I thought, oh God, this is hopeless. But she came in and said, That that sounds great. She said, it needs a bit of work, but it sounds great. And do you know, I had a ball recording that. That's, That's the awesome. first time I've played in harmonica for about 45, 50 years. You had to get and, your chops up again, huh? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> but, but I can't do it on stage because How old was that harmonica? Was that like the har the last time you played harmonica? Was that the same harmonica you <laughs> used? Yeah, no, no, it wasn't unfortunately because I don't know where that one was. And I think the one I got was the same one as, as all all the old blues players you used to use and um anyway i i had a, it took me about honestly i had the longest session for one flipping overdub that you'd ever seen there it was after <laughs> everyone had gone and i went into the we'd recorded the basic track live as as i keep telling you we we, we did on almost everything and i went into um this bit which is our live room 
in the studio. Oh, nice. So if you can see that. Yep. Um, uh, and um, I spent, it must have been three hours trying to get my head round playing the harmonica. But I did in the end, and, and, and it was pretty much one take in the end that we used. And so in the end, it was almost a one take thing, but it took about three hours to get there. <laughs> That's okay, man. <laughs> hey, whatever hey, it takes. Yeah, whatever it takes to get that done. It's, it sounds like you just did it, and it's just, it's so much fun to listen to. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's fun, it, fun to play. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. And so then the last song on the, the record, The Sun Will Rise Again. You know, Colin, this is weird, but he sounds like Tim Harden on that. And I know he didn't. He do a version of Misty Roses way back in the day. A beautiful he version. He did a actually. really beautiful version of Misty Roses. And that was a song he found. Um, the guy, Chris Gunning, that I told you played, um, uh, wrote the strings on I Want to Fly. Yeah. Um, he did this wonderful modern classical um center part of it uh, for colin to sing to and when colin on misty roses when colin comes back into the, the tune when chris first went round to him and played it on the piano colin thought what on earth is this i, I can't sing over that you know because it was so avant-garde and modern yeah, but in the yeah. end it worked out oh just just heartrending it was beautiful anyway um he, uh, that was Tim Hardy's song, Misty Roses, as you as you said, right, right. Say. And the lead singer once many years ago, when we first got back together again, um, we were playing a festival in Spain, and the Black Crows were um, um, headlining, and we we sound checked about two o'clock in the afternoon, and they weren't on till you know much later in the evening, and we saw him standing in the in the empty audience space, and we thought, what's he doing here? And he came up and said. Misty Roses is one of my favorite tracks of all time on a record. And I thought, what an unlikely, you know, musicians always surprise me in the nicest way because they have open minds. Like you've got a really open mind, you know, and you hear all, all things. And, and it's it's so lovely to, to, to have that. But um, Colin, uh, that's the song that Colin wrote. And, he, and it's the one song that Colin wrote on the album. And he wrote it for his daughter when she was really little. Uh, um, and and again, she was going through. Um, uh, it, 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 he was very very sad. I can't remember what what sort of crisis she was going through. Um, but he, it was his advice to her. Um, and Colin plays classical guitar, but it takes him forever to play it. But oh, but he, he did get, he play the part on there? Is he playing no, the gut string? Oh. No, Tom did that again. Tom, okay. uh, uh, beautiful, uh, well done, uh, a guitarist. But. He copied every voicing that Colin did on oh. the demo. He absolutely copied it all. Um, and he just nailed the actual precise the take. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. Um He's a good player, man. Wow. The original idea on, on that was um for it just to be um voice and guitar. It's my feeling of, of of having real contrast on the album, as you were talking about, Dane, real contrast, you know, of having um a uh, like you could be my love and then and then against that something like i don't know merry-go-round or something which is a real real contrast if you had a whole album like you could be my love i think it would get very boring but if you have all these things it's it's exactly what you were talking about the context of having um the shape and an order of an album and i thought when i heard colin's demo of that which he, he took forever to put down just with his voice and and guitar um, I thought, what a lovely sort of way to end an album, a, like a little afterthought. The way the Beatles used to with, you know, maybe 
And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You know, it's just a lovely thought to leave people with. And I thought that would be a beautiful way to, and particularly after the 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 raunchiness of um, Got to Move On, um, that that would be a beautiful thing. Colin sang it so beautifully. And Tom played it beautifully. And we worked a little bit on the bass part. Um and uh, and that was the song. It was done really, really, really quickly. But, you know, Colin knew the song so well and he sang it so quietly as he often used to in the in the old days. And I absolutely love the way that finishes the album. It's beautiful. beautiful song. Fantastic. To go from from your newest thing to your first thing. Oh, hello. So tell, tell, tell us how you guys first got started and how that first record came out and what what was that like? It was brilliant. I, I I wanted to be in a rock and roll band more than anything in my life. I was 15 years old. I was born in um, uh, 1945, so it was it was about 1960, 61 actually. Um, uh, but for the last five years, I'd I'd really wanted to be in a band since I was 11 years old. Actually, I really wanted to be in a band because my cousin Jim Rodford. Um, who was later the um, uh, founder member of Argent with me as a bass player? And then and I, I saw Jim with the Kinks twice. With the Kinks in the, in the late seventies, and he was a great player. Great he's player. he's great, and and uh, and that um, he was there at the time of their sort of um, on stage renaissance, actually in in, in the states, and, and that's when they had the number one record that Jim played on, which is Come Dancing, and and the yeah. um, the album that was out around that time. Um, but anyway. Jim was in one of the first bands in um, uh, uh, in the south of England in those really early days. He was in a skiffle group, first of all. And he played what we called a T-chest bass, which is just a broom handle and um, a, a, a T-chest. And he, he used to put a, a primitive mic inside the, the box. And he, and he could still, I mean, unfortunately, he's just passed away but uh, recently. But he could get right up to the time he died, he could get the most great sounds out of a piece of string and a broom handle. It was absolutely wow. fantastic. <laughs> anyway, I, I fell in love the day he played me Elvis singing Hound Dog. It changed my life. It really changed my world. And mm. um, he was then, he lived 400 yards away from me and he was a real enabler. Uh, he, he was a mentor for me throughout my life, really. And, and always a real, real help. Absolutely gorgeous bloke. Um, and um, uh, and so I thought, and I saw a picture when I was eleven. I saw a, a, t a bit of TV footage of, of Elvis singing somewhere live, and he just started out. And I thought, this is like a being from another universe. And, and I thought, there's no way anybody in England can have, really have anything to do with this music properly. But um, I, I've got to just get out there when I'm old enough to form a band and get out there and just try and be part of it in my whatever little way I can, you know. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing was, was that just eight years later, Elvis had our records on his uh, jukebox, um, wow. uh, which was absolutely extraordinary in 1964. And I didn't wow. find that out until the 90s um, when I was talking about um, this particular thing. And um, he said, I can't believe you didn't know Elvis had, you know, because we knocked on Elvis's door and he, he wasn't there. But... Mm. His his uh, father said, 
he'll be sorry to have missed you because he loves your your music. And I thought, he doesn't know who we are, but wonderful Southern hospitality. And and then <laughs> I was telling this to an Irish DJ many years later, and he said, I'm an Elvis freak. And Elvis had, he said, I can't believe you didn't know that in 64, he had some of your um, tracks on, on his jukebox. You know, so, wow. so, wow. so that was really lovely. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't remember why I started that rambling uh, anecdote, but... Um, yeah and so when i was 15 i walked into another classroom at school um to meet a friend uh and uh, uh paul atkinson was in the corner in a little folk club playing what we would nowadays call you know a really good groove um uh on some folk stuff that he was playing and i thought that sounds really good. And I love his feeling of time. And I thought, and I said, I went up to him and said, Would you, do you want to be in a band? And he, and he said, no, I don't mind if I do. I said, okay, great. And then that night I went round, um, I was, what was I at the time? 15, I think. And, uh, or I might have been just 16. I can't remember. Um, and I went round to my friend who lived close to me and I said, how's that bass guitar coming on that you were building? He said, well, it's done. I said, fantastic. You can, you can be in the band. And so he said, okay. And and then he said, I've got a mate at school who um, uh, sits very close to me and he's a, a guitarist. I was supposed to be the singer. And he, he said, uh, um, he plays guitar and he also sings a little bit. I said, great. Absolutely great. So I thought, right, we just need a drummer now. Um, and that end of that week in my school, um, I was no part of it, but they had an army cadet corps and, and one of the guys in my year, um, was playing drums, you know, just that really. Yeah. Um, and I picked the guy in the band that seemed to have the best sense of rhythm. And I walked up into afterwards and said, do you want to be a drummer in a band? And he said, yeah, don't mind if I do. So um, <laughs> within two weeks, we had a rehearsal. That, and that's the evening that I met Colin. Colin looked in a terrible state. I remember Jim, as usual, helped. And he he, he drove me to the rehearsal. Um, he loaned me all the Blue Tones gear. That was his first band. Um, he loaned us all that. And he came along to help with the rehearsal. And we went down the road. And we started rehearsing and we thought we sounded sort of pretty shit hot with um, uh, with the Blue Tones gear, you know, and we never had anything like that for ages afterwards. Uh, and I was singing a bit. Um, and then when we had a coffee break, um, I wandered over to a beaten up old piano, which was out of tune and had some notes missing. And I started playing the, the uh, Bee Bumble and the Stingers hit of the time, Nut Rocker. And Colin came running up to me and he said, that's fantastic. He said, I didn't know you could play like that, piano like that. You've got to play piano in the band. And I said, oh, Colin, I don't think that's the sort of band I've got in mind at all. And I was really confused. And then about half an hour later, we had another coffee break. Colin picked up a guitar and started singing a Ricky Nelson song. Um, it might have been, it's late, it might have been, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, but I thought he sounded absolutely fantastic and i couldn't believe what i was hearing and i said to him um listen you've got to be the lead singer you have to be the lead singer and, and i'll play piano then and then i 
um, uh, that changed my life because when we first played, when I first played piano, the the only pianos um, were the ones that were supplied. They were usually about a tone and a half down. Um, so so the, the guitars had to tune down and everything. And um, the only time you could ever hear me on stage in those days was when I did a, a Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, the the, down the piano. <laughs> and and uh, therefore, I used to do it all night long, all play. I'm going to be heard. <laughs> exactly, whatever you do. And yeah. so, and the thing was that Colin used to judge the success of a gig by how much blood there was on my thumb. You know, oh, from, there you go. So, so there you go. We put everything into it in those days. Um, but anyway, that's that's how we started. Uh, we did exactly what Dave Grohl said in such a great way. He said, "If you want to be in a band, you know, get to, together with some friends, go into a garage and suck." And we certainly did in <laughs> in those early days. We certainly yeah. did. But we gradually got better. Um, and, and, and within two years, we'd, we'd started playing gigs locally and really building up a following. This is only in St. Albans in one little area, you know, an area of maybe five or six miles. That's it. Um, and we were building up audiences of about 400 people. And then we joined, um, a rock and roll beat competition. And we won it, and we beat Jim's band in the final amongst three other bands. Jim Rodford's band. Oh. Jim Rodford's band. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no. because Jim, Uh-oh. Jim, Jim said to me uh, just a few years ago before he died, he said to me, "Do you know what?" He said on that first um, rehearsal when you thought you all thought you were sounding pretty hot, he, he said, uh, "I thought no chance, you know." But then we beat <laughs> them in. We, we beat them in that. Yeah, and um, and the head of Decca was was at the, at the show and, and he came backstage after and said i'd like you to do a record for decca um and, and suddenly you know our life changed really and and i wrote i wrote the first two songs i'd, I'd ever written really um and the, and both of them um were done in the first recording session the, se- the second one was she's not there um that became the single obviously and the other one strange enough if you it, when you look on um, Spotify or whatever, uh, you see one of the most um, streamed songs is still that first song I ever wrote, which is which was called "It's All Right with Me." So that was interesting too. But that, that's that was how the band got together. Speaking of big songs, I mean, you played on "Who Are You?" Can you tell us the the story behind that and, and being a part of that with the Who? I just played. Um, <clears throat> I just played on the Roger Daltrey album, one of the boys. Um, okay. And Roger asked me to that do record. that. Yeah. And, and um, I played on that, on every track. Um, and around that time, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, was doing um, an album, which became a number one album in the UK, uh, called Variations. It was his own set of variations on, a, on the famous Paganini theme. Um, and um, it was with Gary Moore, Coliseum, with John Heisman, um, and Barbara Thompson um, and and uh, Andrew uh, had had lunch with me and said, um, "Would you join the project?" And I said, "Well, I don't know if I can. I'm a good enough reader at that point, you know, to to do to do that, um, you know, and play with those guys and and do a set of variations that you've written." And he said, "Oh, you know," he said, "No, you just get a feeling. I think you can." So I'd, I'd agreed to do it anyway. And then um, uh, Pete. Uh, Townsend asked me if I would do, and because Roger had spoken to him and said we should try and get Rod on the on the on the album. Who are you? Um, 
and I, I went along, but I think the Who were going through a fairly um, difficult period yeah. managerially, or, or uh, in, in, it, it was a lot of business stuff going on anyway. And they would all turn up pretty much on time, but they even, would have meetings. even Keith Moon. He wasn't. Keith in the Moon was there. He first. wasn't in the. Was he really? He was there. You know, he was. The, we started at eleven. Um, and and they all finished about um, five or six o'clock, so they weren't long days. Um, but Keith Moon was always there on the stroke of eleven and sober in the morning. Really, and then no one else would turn up. So he said to me, "I learned my lesson on the first day, actually, because uh, he said, yeah. Rob, well, why don't we go down the pub?" He said, uh, "He said, let's go down the pub and have a drink." He said, um, "They're not here at the moment." And I said, <laughs> "Yeah," I, I said, "Okay, Keith, yeah." And so we started to walk round, and he said. <laughs> I'm supposed to have a minder with me everywhere. He said, but um, he said, I like to slip him really. So anyway, we walked around, <laughs> we walked to this, this really rough pub and, mm. uh, and in the, in the side, as we, we walked past these guys playing pool and this huge guy um, was, was queuing like that. Um, and um, as Keith walked past, he jogged his elbow and went, Oh, sorry, mate. And the guy looked at him as if he was going to, you know, really uh do something serious and so i thought do you know what uh -oh. i'm gonna have one little drink and get out of here <laughs> so i said i said oh keith there's something i've got to sort out before the first thing and i left him there you know oh my god and, and then later on in the session it was funny because I, I they were still everyone was still they were all there but they were upstairs having a, a, a managerial meeting and so I wandered into the studio and Keith was on his big drum rostrum and he suddenly started attacking me with the, the drumsticks and chucking them at me like spears, you know. I thought, whoa, <laughs> no. Uh, but anyway, sorry, that was a story about the No, that's of... great. So he stuck around after he had a few more drinks after you. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, definitely. Like. And, and he was really, really, uh, really sailing by that time, you know. Um, any, anyway, um, the thing was, when we actually recorded tracks, they were done very quickly. Um, the first track I was on, actually, which I'm not credited for, but in some ways it's my my it's the, the favourite one I play out of the three tracks that I ended up playing on the album. It was called "Love Is Coming Down," mm. and, it's, and, huh. and I, I loved playing that. I loved that first, you know, that first track. And in the end, I, I just they probably couldn't remember who played on what, so they didn't they they didn't credit me for that. And then I did play on "Who Are You." Um, and I also played you, on the, you're playing the yeah, piano. You're, yeah, you're playing you're all piano, that right? little, little, little stuff on there. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's killer, man. I, and I played on, um, I played on uh, a John Entwistle song where he got already got a synth sound, and he wanted me just to play this part. And strangely enough, that took me longer than anything else because uh, it was just, um, it's exactly what he wanted. He was very happy with it. Um, in fact, so you just I, had to I, copy his bass line. Lick no, lick no, it wasn't. A, no, no. Oh. I mean, I had to copy the the phrases he wanted, you know, which was I fine. See. It was absolutely fine, but it took a while to do it. Um, and in fact, I became really friendly with John, and, and he invited me and my wife down to his place in Wales and to meet his dad, who was in a in a choir, and he wanted me to conduct the choir, which I didn't have a clue how to do, but 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 I did, you know. And I, I went into a pub one night and played um, some. Uh, bass and piano blues, you know, on, on a on a pub piano for a while, and and he he was a really sweet guy, really really sweet guy. But which uh, which John, point, which song was it for for John John Entwistle? Oh songs? God, what was it called? Was it called 
had, wasn't, had enough or had, had enough. En- had enough. Okay. okay. Had enough. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna go back um, and, and listen to this again. Sound yeah. as well. So I just had to play what he wanted there, you know. And then I then a couple of days later, I had to say uh to Pete, look, Pete, I've you know, it's such a shame, but I'm I'm gonna have to go because I've got to play on this Andrew Lloyd Webber album, you know, because I've 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 committed to doing it. You know, and I've always hated to let anybody down. I, I, I you know, I, I don't want to just change things at the last minute. Um, and um, and Pete said, "Well, wouldn't you rather be playing on this?" I said, "It's not a question of whether I would or not. Really, I, I'm committed to do it. I've said I would do it, and it's starting. You know, in a week's time, I, I've got to, I've got to go and do it." So they were the only three tracks I played on in the end. Mm. But I was supposed originally to play on the on the whole album. Mm. It got to a point where I gave up um, <clears throat> life on the road. Um, I was with Argent in '75, and we'd had a, a terribly um, organised tour. It was it was just for, I won't go into all the reasons for why, but uh, at the end of it, I thought I can't take any more of this. And and it was in those mid '70s times when it seemed to be the music was the last thing that you were involved in because you had to take your own PA system on the road, huge speakers you know I and mean, everywhere you go now you just specify what you need and you've got some great speakers etc um and uh we were using real instruments vintage instruments like hammond um like a mellotron they all uh, broke every night and they all uh, had to be repaired while you were on the road and i thought i can't go through that again because the music feels like the last thing you know that you do and i've been on the road for 12 years non-stop at the time and i had a very young family um i just had you know to to really young kids um they were very young at that time so i thought i i'm coming off the road and i thought for a year i'll do nothing um uh that i have any direct input into but if anyone offers me anything interesting i'll do it and that's how the roger daltrey album came up and then the andrew lloyd Webber album and then and 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 things got me and the who of course and, and and other other albums too and and that led to me um being asked to write uh, film music and, and TV music. I mean, m- mostly TV films, actually, um, and, and uh, theme things, which, which uh, some of them went on for ages. Um, but anyway, um, that's what happened. And, and so around that time, I did do some stuff with Jack, Jack Lancaster, and I think Wild Connections was one of them. He obviously, it was obviously Jack that got me to do it, um, and it was done so quickly that I, I really don't remember. I played on, on a Demis Roussos album as well, and I don't remember anything about that either. Um, it, and Jack Lancaster produced that. I can't remember what that was called. Um, Just another another day in the studio. I know how it is, man. <laughs> I think it was at that time. And yeah. in the end, I mean, I enjoyed that for a, a couple of years. Um, sure. But uh, I then had enough of that because um, I found myself doing all sorts of things some of them I really wanted to do, like the Who album, and I loved. Um, uh, I created a lot of things on the Andrew Lloyd Webber album, actually, which became number one in in the UK. Um, but then I found myself being asked to do things miles and miles away for a BBC session or something, and and it took me forever to get there. And then I thought, why am I doing this? I, I just don't want to do it really. So I, I gave that up, and I thought, um, and then I've got a very a dear friend who's a classical musician and he said why don't you do a classical album and i said well i can't i'm self-taught you know I, I can't do that 
And he said, I've heard you half play so many things. Why don't you do some real work for a year, he said, and and um, and see, see what you can do. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot, you know, because I love classical music as well. And I picked some of my favourite pieces, no matter how simple or how difficult, with one or two exceptions. And I thought, I'm going to just see where I am after a year. And I practised three hours a day for a year, doing nothing else, but, you know, trying to play these classical things. And in the end, I made a bit of a fist of it, actually, and had some really lovely responses um, uh, about it. And and it was just solo piano, solo piano classical pieces like Ravel, um, Bach, Couperin, um, and, and, um, and uh, you know, m- many things. Uh, Chopin, I did, three, I did a couple of Chopin studies. And, you know, so I really enjoyed trying to stretch myself like that. But... I can't play any of those now because the minute you stop, you know, if you don't keep up that regime, certainly with with me, uh, you know, I, it would take me forever to try and re rehearse them and build it up. I did a few concerts. I did a few concerts, you know, but did you, not, memor- did you end up memorizing them or were you still reading them? I am. I ended up memorizing them. Actually, the ones I re- I recorded, um, I had to really. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I really had to. Um, anyway, that's what I did. Um, yeah, I think I, on all of them, I think I, I memorised them um, and, and took the music along with me to the studio. And, and Bob, my my dear classical friend, he um, he produced the, the album too. So that, 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 that was a great... It was just, you know, a, a bit of sort of stretching yourself, really, and trying well, can we, to... Can we go back and find that? I'd love to hear that. Oh, yes. Is that available? Called, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, I don't, I don't know whether you can still get it. It's called Rod Argent, and then classically speaking. Okay. And it opens with a little bit of Grieg, and then there's a Chopin study that follows that. Wow, that was great, man. Thank you so much for the time today. We really no appreciate kidding. it. Congrats on the new record. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you, Andy. Thank you so much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.